Please rise for the Holy Word from Ephesians, chapter 2, 12, and 13. And we're starting in the middle of the verse. Remember that at that time in Israel, you were separate from Christ, excluding from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Glory be to God. My wife left me this week to uh, be with Jonathan and Kelsey, who are going through some very serious medical issues. But as a consolation, imagine my surprise when I open the door and find two of my former gang members who've come all the way from Grand Prairie and Minneapolis just to uh, comfort me in my loneliness. So I welcome our special guests, Freddie and Gary Munich, also known as Eminem. And uh, their special guests here this morning, here with their mother Gerda, which is the other reason why they came. Now, Gary and Fred have had a long career impressing people with their vocal ability, blessing many. But I want you to know that I was the one who gave them their start. I gave them their first break. It was back in the 70s. We were working on the program for a Christmas banquet at Temple Baptist. And uh, all of a sudden, the idea came to me. This never happened before. I said, the three of us are going to sing We Three Kings. And we're just going to do it. And we're each going to sing one verse solo. And we'll sing the rest of it together. We've never done that before. And we were the hit of that banquet. I think we got a standing ovation. And I thought that was the beginning of a gospel trio. But they dropped me from the group shortly after that, left me in the dust, and went on to greater things. So I want you to know that uh, I've forgiven you for that. <laughs> almost. I'm almost there. And uh, I would actually call you forward to... Uh, repeat our performance, but we're running out of time, so <laughs> we'll have to leave it for now. We're doing a series, uh, this is episode three, on some of the controversial things that Jesus said, things that shocked people. And today we're in Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28, so let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that... Uh, you constructed the human family the way you did. It's absolutely brilliant. And you placed within those families these special people called mothers who, who have capacities that really boggle our minds. And uh, they teach us a lot about you. 
and the kind of God that you are. And so we just want to celebrate mothers today, and we want to, through them, honor you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So happy Mother's Day, and God bless us, everyone. As we reflect back on our lives, we realize that some of the most important lessons that we learned were the ones imparted to us by our mothers. I found some of these on the internet and I added a few of my own. For example, our mothers taught us all about religion. You better pray that comes out of the carpet. <laughs> they taught us about having a future orientation. Just wait till your father gets home. They taught us Cartesian logic because I said so, that's why. They taught us to be independent. When the lawnmower cuts off your toes, don't come running to me. They taught us behavior modification. Stop acting like your father. They taught us the second law of thermodynamics. If you dare do that, you'll be sorry. And they taught us the mathematical complexities of relativity. If I've told you once, I told you a million times, don't exaggerate. I guess the problem is that motherhood doesn't come with a script. You have to make it up as you go along. But we will have to agree that of all the convictions and capacities that God has bestowed upon the human race, none are more impressive than maternal instincts. Mothers often perform feats of sacrifice and heroism that exceed the dedication of athletes for their team or patriots for their country or even fanatics for their cause. For example, consider this mother who Jesus encountered in Matthew 15. It says in verse 21, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Now this affliction was not unusual in that region. Tyre and Sidon were black holes in the cosmic expanse of the Roman Empire. Centuries of superstition and idolatry had made that area a natural habitat for evil. And in that toxic environment, even the young were victimized. She cried out, have mercy on me, my daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Just imagine the heartache. It's traumatic for parents, for mothers, to watch their children struggling with the afflictions of things like periodic epilepsy or asthma attacks or allergic reactions. But far beyond that, just imagine demonic torment. This mother had to watch her child convulsing with tortures of body and mind. It was as if she was being mauled by some invisible savage beast. And there was nothing anyone could do to remove this sinister presence that was anchored in the very depths of her tormented soul. There was no hope except for one thing that 
girl had a mother who refused to give up. So she came to Jesus crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. She was a Canaanite. They were a cursed tribe. And in the days of Joshua, they became so depraved that the Hebrews almost exterminated them. So you can imagine the racial hatred the survivors had towards the chosen people. Yet this Canaanite comes to her mortal enemy, a Jew, a son of David, to plead for help. How does this make sense? This was not a referral from the family psychologist. Wasn't there anyone in all of Tyre and Sidon who could help her? Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters? Well, forget what you see in the movies, because when it comes to the supernatural realm, our leading experts are utterly incompetent and ineffective. What was so impressive about Jesus was the authority that he exercised over demons, which proved that he outranked the powers and principalities of darkness. They were mere privates. He was the commander-in-chief. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And that was a task of biblical proportions because as chapter 5, verse 19 says, we know the whole world is under the control of the evil one. But Jesus triumphed over them through his death and resurrection. And consequently, we who follow Jesus, we who believe in him, who have received him as our Lord and Savior, we have the assurance of chapter 4, verse 4, that we have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So when Jesus was casting out demons in the land of Israel, it made headlines, international headlines. It went viral long before the internet. This mother had heard reports and rumors of a Jew named Jesus who had power over evil spirits. Jesus? Jesus. That's when something began to stir within the depths of her soul at the mention of that name. As if some internal guidance system had just been activated and she had to find him. And this mother would have traveled all the way to Galilee, but she heard that the one who had come to seek and save the lost was headed her way. Why? Was was he perhaps coming for me? Why not? And so Jesus ran to her with open arms. Well, not exactly. Verse 23, it says, Jesus did not answer a word. Jesus did not answer a word. He ignored her. And that's when reality hit. He hadn't come for her. What was she thinking? Jews have no dealing with Gentiles, least of all Canaanites. Jesus did not answer a word. And of course, this is not an isolated case. Some of us have cried out for help, and yet there was no reply. No response. The silence of God has been 
troubling over the centuries, and it has actually been a spawning ground for an entire industry of ideology that is maintained by the noisy racket of skeptics and scoffers. Philosopher Arthur Kessler concluded, nature has let us down, God has left the receiver off the hook, and time is running out. Of course, that was before cell phones. What he meant to say was no Wi-Fi reception. Searching, searching, no signal. Jesus did not answer a word. And this is where a lot of people turn away from God. And they spend the rest of their life disappointed by his silence. But what would happen if instead of turning away from God, we actually drew closer to him? What would happen if we did that? Well, this mother shows us. Verse 23. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, she keeps crying after us. The disciples were embarrassed and annoyed. They were kind of his personal bodyguards, always trying to protect him. In Matthew 10, 13, when the people were bringing little children to Jesus, they rebuked them, send them away. They have no right to come to the Lord. In Matthew 6, or Mark 6, when it was late in the day, his disciples came and said, this is a remote place, it's already very surrounding country. There's all these people here, send them away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat. And here again, it's just getting awkward. Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. She did not turn away from God. She continued to press in. What's wrong with her? Can't she take no for an answer? Aha. There it is. That's the thing. Jesus was silent, but he didn't say no. Never mistake God's silence for rejection as the philosophers have done. Silence does not mean no. And that's why she kept pleading for help. This mother had a lot more courage and stamina than the existentialists of our generation. She cried out until finally he did answer her. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He was the good shepherd. His mission was for the lost sheep of Israel. It was not available to the Gentile dogs of Tyre and Sidon. It, it seems like he's doing everything possible to discourage her, to drive her away, and yet he still hasn't officially said no. What is he up to? Verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. As a Gentile, she had no legal basis for this appeal, no credentials, no rights, no entitlement. All she had was her need. Lord, help me, she said. She'd come too far to turn back now. And notice that with every appeal, she drew closer and closer, leaving behind every cultural animosity, breaking every barrier between earth and heaven. 
And she was now reeling right before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Say what? Of all the things that Jesus said, this seems like the most uncaring and heartless. This was the typical Jewish attitude toward the Gentiles. And of course, the repulsion was mutual. One scholar says the Jews of that era considered Gentiles dogs, flea-bitten mongrels that prowl through garbage and run in packs. That's what the religious right-wing conservatives of that era believed. It is not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to their dogs. Well, notice that he used a different word for dogs. He was referring to house pets, which were part of the domestic scene in the Gentile regions. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, I'm not a dog person. I prefer hedgehogs and chameleons. But I have bonded with one canine down in Florida. Jonathan's dog, Willow, some kind of a black and white pooch that looks like a skunk. But when we visit, every evening I eat Chobani passion fruit yogurt. And then Willow is standing on her back legs watching me so that when I finish, I let her lick the spoon and then lick out the container. And she does so with such vigor that it is absolutely clean. There is no residue, not a morsel left, not even the FBI could find a fingerprint. And I imagine it's the highlight of her day. Nobody, whether Jew or Gentile, likes passion fruit yogurt more than Willow and I. Jesus said, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs, their pets. You see what is happening here? By these words, Jesus has pulled her from the garbage dump of religious bigotry right into the household. Those of you who have pets have formed loving relationships with them. They're part of the family. And every night you pray, Oh God, help me be the person my dog thinks I am. Even though what Jesus says sounds like exclusion, it actually leaves an opening for this mother to take advantage of. If this was a chess match, verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. That would be check. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she said. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And that is checkmate. She's got him. Which is remarkable. Because this mother succeeded in doing something no one else had ever accomplished. She matched wits with the omniscient God and won the argument. 
She backed Jesus into a corner. Every time he raised the stakes, she called his hand. Besides, she was hoping that he might be bluffing. But she was all in, and he had to fold. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. No one else had ever done this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had long brainstorming sessions. They had emergency meetings that went into overtime trying to figure out how they could destroy Christ's credibility, how to lure him into some theological minefield where he was bound to stub his toe on some explosive doctrinal detail. They set all kinds of traps for him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? This woman was caught in adultery. Moses said we should stone her, but what do you say? They set all these traps for him, but they backfired every time. Yet this Canaanite mother was the only one who won an argument with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus had to say, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And now we know what it was all about. She didn't change his no into a yes. Because there never was a no. He came to Tyre and Sidon with a yes. His answer was yes before they ever met. It was yes from the foundations of the earth. And yes, he had come looking for her. Obviously, Jesus was not a part of the religious right wing. He had a lot of trouble with those people and some of their attitudes. And he wasn't a left-wing liberal either. In fact, he didn't care that much for wings. He preferred loaves and fishes. You can't categorize God politically or religiously because his ways are not our ways. So do you see what he was up to? Jesus could have granted her request immediately. And she could have left with her miracle and nothing else. This wasn't primarily about casting out a demon. This was all about establishing a personal relationship. And the essence of a relationship with God is faith. Hebrews 11.6, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The essence of a relationship with God is faith, and that's precisely why he was silent. God's silence is not meant to turn you away. It's meant to draw you closer. And it worked. When he was silent, she kept following him, kept crying out. And even his apparent indifference, when he said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, even that didn't discourage her. She actually came and knelt before him. She's now, when he said in verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to their dogs, she's now in the kitchen the most personal part of the family setting. 
The silence of God is not meant to turn us away, but to draw us closer. She did not get discouraged. His dismissive comments only motivated her to press on. It reminds me of Jacob wrestling with God until he was finally so broken that he grabbed on with all his might and said, I won't let you go until you bless me. Sometimes the one we fight against is the only one who can bless us. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Wow, your request is granted. I'll tell you, those are not scraps. She's not just licking out the yogurt cup. She is sitting at the family table, feasting on the fatted calf of his amazing grace, a child of the king. In fact, she is given a place of honor. Woman, you have great faith. Faith is the essence of a personal relationship with God. And this mother's faith was exceptional. Scholars have pointed out that our Lord marveled at only two things. Great unbelief and great faith. And surprisingly, he never commented or or commended his disciples for great faith, even though they left everything to follow him. In fact, only twice was Jesus actually impressed with someone's faith, and both of them were Gentiles. The Roman centurion and this Canaanite mother. And that's what we're celebrating today. Godly mothers who have sacrificed and suffered, seeing their children in crisis. Mothers who came boldly to the throne of grace, interceding, pleading to rescue their children from Satan's temptations and torments. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the impact of your prayers is far greater than anything you can imagine. So never stop praying, because those intercessions are some of the decisive factors in this terminal generation. And I know you'll never give up, because you are women of great faith. But this is a lesson for all of us. Because we tend to have a fast food approach to faith. We don't even want to go inside and sit at a table. We'll just do the drive through I'll just take a miracle to go. No, I don't want fries with that. But prayer is not a vending machine that dispenses grace and mercy in time of need. There's something much more going on here. Prayer is not primarily about problem solving. The main reason for prayer is the opportunity to draw closer to God with growing faith. So even if we don't get what we ask for, even if our circumstances don't approve, it's not a failure. Not if we've deepened our relationship with God and strengthened our faith in Him. That's what prayer is all about. Everything God does is meant to draw you closer to him.
That's why sometimes he's silent. It forces us to approach the throne. Can you hear me now? And even if he doesn't respond, we are able to move right in and kneel before him. You see, in any crisis, we have two options. We will either turn away frustrated and angry with God, or we will draw closer. Father. Remember what happened to the son on the cross when the father had disappeared? And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The distance was overwhelming. But although God turned away from him, he did not turn away from God. Because his last words were not God, why? His last words were, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. That was the only thing that mattered, the Father. That's what prayer is all about. And sometimes we don't get what we ask for. Sometimes our circumstances don't change. But every time we pray, we have the opportunity to draw near to the heart of God, to draw near by faith. In fact, the worse your problem is, the greater faith it takes to draw closer. Just don't ever turn away. You know, there's one word that Jesus repeated constantly, and it defines his attitude towards you. And it's the word, come. Come, all you who are weary and burdened. Come and see. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Come, for all things are now ready. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Those who come to me, I will never cast out. That's one of his favorite words. And it's a word he's addressing to you personally this morning. We're going to do something a little different. I'm going to ask the, the guys to come up here with the praise team. And we're going, to, we're going to try something that God kind of has laid on my heart to do. And uh, we want to respond to that invitation. While they're playing and we're singing, look into your heart and ask yourself, have you been turning away from God because you're deeply disappointed? Because there's something that's hurt you and you just can't, you can't get close to him. It's created a barrier. It's created a distance. Could it be that what's happened is an opportunity for you to draw closer to God, to respond to his invitation, come, we all have to make that choice. Are we going to turn away or are we going to turn towards him and draw closer? We need to decide which we're going to do. But to do it in our head and then walk out of here, we'll forget all about it. We'll never remember that it happened on Mother's Day. What I'm going to ask you to do, if you 
feel, if you have decided that what you want to do when the crisis comes, when the worst that can possibly happen has happened, instead of turning away from God, you're going to draw closer to Him. I'm going to ask you to just come to the front. I need to do that. Some of you need to do that. Maybe all of you need to do that. If you just mentally make the decision, you'll never remember it. But if you actually come and walk to the front, you will never forget that you did that. And God will bring it to your remembrance. He'll point it out. And the next time you have that decision, you'll remember that the decision has already been made when you came forward. You just have to apply it to this crisis. So we're going to sing, and while they're singing, if you want to come, I'll just have a quick prayer with you afterwards, and then we'll be dismissed. This is not complicated. It won't take a long time. Let's stand together and sing, and the invitation this morning is to come. Come.